This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from Episode 7, our review of the new ASLD NAFL practice guidelines with Ken Cousy. Plus, from the vault, conversation 59.3 from Season 2, in which we discussed a then-recent article from Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg titled Advancing the Global Health Agenda for NAFLD. I begin this conversation by recalling that when the U.S. addressed cholesterol 35 years ago, one pivotal step was asking reference labs to redefine the boundary for high cholesterol from the typical, which was two standard deviations above the mean, down to a fixed number, and then ask what that approach might imply for the analysis of ALT. After I offer some issues in how the U.S. labs present ALT and how that might be handled in treatment, Jorn Schottenberg describes how German medicine operates today and the challenges inherent in trying to implement a countrywide change in interpretation like this one. His main takeaway, following guidance to utilize FIP4 widely will provide a foundation for stronger use of tests in the future and be far easier to implement. Ken Cousy adds that the guidance has aimed to improve the sensitivity of FIB4 in regards to false positives and looks forward to the near future when we will have tests of increased precision where the right patients are appropriately referred to clinicians more consistently. Returning to the original question, I suggest that in the context of primary care, properly assessing ALT results might become slightly confusing given multiple ways to assess it. And I ask whether the reference roles can have a role in creating clarity around this issue. From the European perspective, Jorn suggests education is needed to drive the question from the physician to the lab. Ken points out that the U.S. electronic medical record system should be able to integrate notifications like this around cutoffs easily. And Louise Campbell asserts the need for AST and ALT to be universally included within blood profiling. Today, this is not standard in many countries outside the U.S. In the final comment of this conversation, Ken reiterates the importance of recognizing and driving the message of harnessing what's readily available today positively influence the natural history of patient disease. These new practice guidelines represent one more positive step in the ongoing process of creating standards for how to diagnose and treat patients living with NAFLD and NASH. This episode explores the next major publication in the ongoing stream of new information and education, and an important one at that. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. One of the thoughts I had from the paper, and Louise, listening to what you just said about NICE kind of re-stimulated this. At the risk of dating myself, when the U.S. tackled cholesterol like it mattered 35 years ago, one of the first things they did was went to the reference labs and asked them to change what they considered the normal value of cholesterol from two standard deviations above the mean down to a fixed number. Here around ALT, you've got this interesting duality, which is you should probably have a lower high standard, 30 instead of 40, but you also might not want to put all that much emphasis on ALT if lots of people with normal liver function also have NAFLD. And I'm wondering if you folks have given any thought to how do we balance those two issues to bring ALT into proper perspective? Jörn Schottenberg. The ALT cutoff was something that struck me when it was initially presented, because normally the upper limit of normal is defined based on a reference population where that test is evaluated. So in my hospital, there are actually up to 50, and they claim that's based on the reference population. And now if you change that, all of a sudden you're going to become a lot of abnormal tests and you would change the whole dynamics and also economics of uh, patients being referred for suspected liver disease. Now, on the other hand, we know the discussion about the cutoff uh, being relevant because patients with normal ALTs will never get as much attention with regards to liver disease. In this guidance, we take a step and say we have an at-risk population canon. Those are people living with type 2 diabetes, and we want to look for, let's say, significant 
significant or advanced fibrosis. So we use um, surrogate scores and that elevates the whole discussion a little bit above ALT. Nonetheless, ALT is probably one of the most used and important tests and one of the most referrals I get. But I can tell you I'm not being referred for an ALT of 35 at this time. So this is not uh, what's happening here. And I think the guidance really shows that the advanced fibrosis disease stage is the ones we want to have. And the utility of FIB4 in doing that so at a large scale is uh, sufficient and something we want to build on. And I guess that's my take home on the ALT here. Ken Kusi. Just let me add that as the co-chair of the ACE guidelines and also having two premier hepatologists like Maru Rinella, who's the first author of the ASLE guidelines, and Savir Yonusi. We had this debate about the cutoff for ALT, which is so important for referral, as our the guidelines we did for endocrinology primary care had to deal with this. And in reviewing the literature, it turned out there were there were about five studies, and there's a position statement by the American Gastroenterological Association that shows that there there's increased morbidity and mortality for ALTs above. There are several studies between 29 to 33 in males and, and lower numbers for females. So for simplicity, they took 30. And there's also studies in, in NASH that when the ALT, AST are in the upper 30s, that most likely a fatty liver and AST will probably be a better indicator for fibrosis. So the sense was that that would highlight patients and perhaps help them do trigger a fit forward where they can really see if this, this if it's consistent with the need for a referral or imaging or something like that. So I think they're trying to improve the sensitivity without what Jorn says, getting too many false positives. I think that this brings an important point that Luis mentioned earlier. The value of these kind of handful of recommendations is trying to now in the past guidelines, I think we're overly conservative given the lack of data. We have more data, but again, not we don't have still long natural histories on NASH, but I think now that we are all erring a little bit and being a little bit more aggressive. And I think the future, there are going to be, hopefully these guidelines are going to promote a number of studies that will define better these cutoffs, the high-risk patients, how often to check. We're going to be in a much better place in five years from now and using this with more precision and referring the right people to Yorn and our friends, the hepatologists and gastroenterologists. So there, there's going to be space for mistakes, I'm sure. People are going to say, well, we shouldn't do just obese people with one risk factor. Maybe you should have done two or, or something else. But but I think this is going to be a learning experience that will prevent cirrhosis in the end. Yeah, and the, the importance of uh, ALT, just to round this up again, comes back to what I mentioned at the beginning, that actually a decrease of ALT in a certain threshold of the therapeutic arena does have a benefit. So clearly, it has a very central role here, as uh, Ken nicely said. I totally agree on that. When I think about this as a document for primary care, though, you can see that some of this might get confusing, right? Even even in the form it's in right now, there you got three or four statements about ALT that all make sense if you put them together and you understand why. But if you haven't thought much about ALT, the idea that goes, the norm should be lower. But by the way, normal doesn't mean there isn't a problem. However, you as you point out, if what you're doing is successful, ALT will come down. That's a lot to roll around in one's head. One of the questions I, I've, like, and I'll go back to where I was a moment ago, Ken or Jorn or Luis, do you see the reference labs getting involved in any of this? 
Because if you're going to move primary care, the easiest way to move primary care is to put a red mark on a sheet of paper or a computer screen they have to look at. And, you know, as we watch LabCorp and Quest in the States both get more engaged in uh, testing for fatty liver, I wonder at what point, is that a focus? Is that something that's likely to happen? How, how do we make that happen? Or should we? Yeah, I'll let Ken go because I can't comment on the U.S. system. Uh, here, it would require the physician to ask the lab for it, and they will then report it, which is easy. But in the absence of deep knowledge on it, it might not not be asked for. So I think there is something where we need the educational part and we got to start talking with them, I think. Yeah. So it's been discussed and I think it will happen. I just think that everything takes momentum. So if you look at the normals on lipid panels, you also, you know, grab your head, right? So it's not all black and white. And, and again, I think it's going to take time but and it's going to take more data and particularly more longitudinal data. So we should be moving in that direction. I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done. Remember that when statins came out in the late 80s, it, it took a decade for guidelines to permeate at all levels. I think the short answer to you is that in the United States with electronic medical records, it'll be easy to put pop-up menus or alert the doctors and other people taking care of our patients to p remind them of this kind of, but to change the entire system will take a little bit longer one step at a time. But as long as doctors know and nurses and physician assistants working in the field, I think that's what matters. Louise Campbell. But I think we've got to move one step forward. We've got to get everybody using AST and ALT within their blood profiles and make that the standard. Because if we speak to Michael Patel, they don't have it in Canada. There are lots of areas in the UK that don't add just these basic tests. So until we get a routine recommendation that these are essential liver enzymes, because if we go back to predictive health, the session we did a couple of weeks ago, it's that AI technology that's going to pick up the data, the prediction and follow people's pathways to be able to intervene earlier. But if we can't do the tests, we can't get that. And therefore, the best way to protect any healthcare services is not to get sick, so to pick these people up earlier with disease. So I think we need to bring it back a little bit. But yes, I think it can be done. But I also cautious of age cutoffs and we don't want to overly alert everybody. Body, but let's get them on as essential tests in anybody's blood profile. Yeah, and, and what I would like to add, the point of this earlier diagnosis is because there are, what I repeat always, that there are things we can do today and we should not just be sitting and doing nothing until FDA or, or European agencies approve drugs. There's been consistency with the ACE guideline. The ACE guideline, by the way, was co-sponsored with by ASLD, so no surprise that they're well aligned. Uh, but I'm Mediterranean diet as the one with best long-term evidence of reduction of cardiovascular disease, need of structured weight loss programs, need to think of bariatric surgery as an option. Again, not with people with decompensated cirrhosis, but earlier stages. And, you know, off-label use of the drugs that primary care and endocrinologists use in the clinic. I hope hepatologists will begin warming up to them as well, but everything takes a little bit of time. For the listeners, there are things you have to be doing now or at least tell your patients that there are anti-obesity medication, diabetes medications like pyoglitazone and GLP-1 receptor agonists that can really change the natural history of your disease. And now, back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week to discuss digital therapeutics and apps and their place in health practices in the U.S., the U.K., and other countries. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.